yeah, the, the first time I, I think about day, I think it was day five when um, I was on the ice and the, the ice actually creaks and groans a lot and there's it, it a lot of movement in the ice because you've got this very, very long finger of a lake, you know, it's, um, but it's not that wide. I think it's 80, 80 kilometers wide. Um, and then there's a lot of like pressure ridges and, you know, you've got like this sort of jumble ice that's, you know, had frozen early in the season. Then it, you know, thawed out and refroze. So there's big sections where you, you actually have to climb over chunks of ice. And I think it's, someone told me it was on a fault line as well. So there's all this creaking, groaning and, you know, cracking going on all the time. You know, even there was days when I was walking along and there's like little fissure cracks shooting out of my feet, you know. So it's it was quite unnerving to begin with. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 159, Gavin Hennigan talks about his 440-mile journey across Lake Baikal in frozen Siberia. All right, guys, this is the final reminder about our podcast listener meetup for Pete Schuster's Continental Divide Trail presentation tomorrow, Friday, April 22nd. We'll be kicking things off at 6 o'clock at Mud Rocks Tap and Tavern in Louisville, Colorado. Some of you have started your ticket purchase process but haven't quite finished it up, so if you're planning to attend this fun event, make sure you get your ticket printed so you can get in the door. Your $10 gets you access to Peter's CDT presentation, your first drink, as well as your raffle ticket for some great giveaways. We've got stuff from two of our show sponsors, Bentgate Mountaineering and SIOI Action Cameras. We've also got some goodies from Backpackers Pantry, as well as our own stoves by 180TAC, as well as more. If you happen to find yourself in Louisville tomorrow evening without a ticket, feel free to drop by Mud Rocks and you can pay at the door as long as there is seating available. We hope to see you there and we're looking forward to meeting you. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis. So I got a great show for you today. Uh, Gavin Hennigan contacted me to tell me a few things about the, the things he's done in his life. And I've got to say, this guy is Mr. Adventure on my list. I mean, of all the people we've talked to, uh, we've got some pretty, pretty cool adventure sports out there and interviews and amazing stories. But Gavin runs the gamut of adventure. And just to give you a little bit of a, a background, and I'll let Gavin fill you in, the guy is a deep sea diver by day. That's his his day job. So for most people, that would be enough of an adventure in and of itself. But when Gavin gets time off, you can find him, you know, the the tops of mountains, uh, climbing, skiing, snowboarding, uh, hiking, or walking Lake Baikal and Siberia. Uh, there, you know, ultra marathons in the Arctic. There's this guy is doing everything out there. So we're going to dig into to Gavin's life and his, his history of adventure a little bit, and uh, and hopefully we'll be entertained here. So Gavin, welcome to the show. How's it going, Travis? Hello from uh, Galway in the west of Ireland. Well, it's good to talk to you, man. Uh, I'm really glad to have you on, and I'm excited to dig into to all these these cool things that you've been doing. I got to be honest, I got a little bit uh, lost in your Instagram 
page uh, when you directed me to it because there's all these these photos of everything you're out doing, and I'm not even sure when you stop to rest because it seems like you're always out there. So, <laughs> you know, let's talk about the the diving stuff. Um, how did you get involved in diving in the beginning, and why deep sea diving? Tell us a little bit about that and. And honestly, I'm I'm curious to know what the day in the life of a deep sea diver is like. Yeah, so uh, I I got into diving um, in Australia. Actually, I went out to Australia when I was um, 21. A lot of Irish, uh, young Irish people would would go out there and work on holiday visa. And uh, I was out there um, just working on the building sites. And I'd heard about this course, um, uh, you know, commercial diving, and I, I didn't really know too much about it at the time. Um, but it really sparked my interest, you know, um, I'd, uh, uh, been surfing and, uh, you know, kind of grew up on the West coast of Ireland here by the, by the, uh, the ocean. So, you know, kind of had a, had a lot of that sort of background and, uh, it just, uh, really, uh, interests me. So I, I, you know, got a big loan out and went for this course and, um, uh, it was actually around the time of Hurricane Katrina in the Gulf of Mexico, um, you know, over 10 years ago. And when I came out of school, dive school, um, there was kind of a bit of a boom in the industry. So I kind of lucked out and fell straight into work. And um, it didn't take me long to uh, head offshore, um, working on the rigs around Southeast Asia from there, you know. So it was kind of all happened very quickly, but uh, I sort of took to it quite well. And then, um, yes, started going, working up in... um, in the oil fields in Asia, um, doing construction on, on the oil platforms, you know? So you do uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of maintenance and constructions uh, construction and you're, you're down in the depths. I mean, this is not normal construction work. Obviously you have a lot of, uh, a lot of variations in your environment that you have to deal with and train for. What's that like being down there? What kind of depths are we talking about? Yeah. So initially it started off as like an, what's called an air diver. It's just, you, you dive, um, say off the side of a, of a boat or a barge, um, and you go down and you, for a couple of hours and you come back up. But after a couple of years of that, I, I qualified, got enough hours up to do uh, what's called saturation diving, and that's kind of where the big, big bucks is at, and that's also the more extreme side of things because you can dive. It's a technique to dive a lot deeper. So what we do is we um, we are put inside a, a diving saturation chamber, which is inside a boat, and we uh, are pressurized inside this uh, pressure vessel for um 28 days and we li- it's our living environment and then we transfer into what's called a diving bell and that takes us to the bottom down to uh up to 200 meters sort of 600 foot in depth um and then we come out of this the diving bell uh go to work on the bottom uh for sort of six hours at a time and then come back into the diving bell which takes us back inside the ship and then we go back into the chamber and that's our our little living space and there could be, you know, three or six guys at a time living in there. And then there's maybe, you know, 12 guys altogether. There's three in each team and it's just sort of round the clock diving. So you, you just, uh, you know, day in, day out, you, you spend uh, your time living in this very small space. It's basically like living in, in, in your bathroom <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> yeah, with uh, two other, two other blokes or, you know, uh, five other blokes. And, uh, yeah, you, you just you know spend your whole time there, and then at the very end, say after about three weeks uh, of you know day to day diving, you you stay in there, or else you move into another chamber, and then you do your decompression, which is uh, you know the process of getting back to uh, normal atmospheric pressure, and um, that takes anything up to a week, you know, to return to uh, the surface. So it's um, yeah, it's a bit a it's a bit different uh, than a normal nine to five. Um, 
job you you know you're 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 we're breathing a completely different uh, gas mixture mixture it's a different atmosphere altogether than the atmosphere that we're in right now we're breathing anything up to 98% helium actually because we nitrogen is narcotic at depth so when you breathe uh, if you were to breathe normal air which is 78% nitrogen uh, 21% oxygen if you if you breathe that anything beyond 50 meters it's you know completely toxic and narcotic and uh, you can't do that so what we do is we uh, use helium helium uh, instead and that's uh, an inert gas also but it has no no narcotic effect so um the only difference is that you speak like a chipmunk um all the time <laughs> so uh, we sound uh, we sound like uh, donald duck and the chipmunks when we're down there you know <laughs> yeah that would be worthy of a few recordings <laughs> yeah it's 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 absolutely hilarious um for the first the first time you do it but it actually wears pretty thin after a while because the the deeper you go the harder it is to understand people and um, because you're breathing a higher and higher percentage of helium so yeah like i said i think when we're down at around if we're anything around 150 175 meters deep in that you know it's about 98 percent helium so Actually, when you first go in, you're, you've you've trouble uh, understanding uh, the other guys you're in with, and then the people speaking to you on the surface, they actually have to have a um, an unscrambler, you know. So um, the the supervisors and the life support technicians they have to on you know they have to have an unscrambler to be able to understand what we're saying, you know. Wow, I had no idea. So I mean, you're you're it's obviously not the safest environment to be in. So to to be able to communicate with your your fellow divers and the surface is uh, highly important, you know. So yeah. the fact that they have scramblers to to make out what you guys are actually saying because your voices are so different, I, I never would have thought of that. Yeah, so we have a we have a full team of what's called life support technicians, and their their job basically is to monitor our our living our living environment. So the, you know our gas mixtures are hugely important, um, what we're breathing, and our decompression schedules are are massively important because you know we don't want to be getting the bends and coming up too quickly you know the, the bends is is the, is the main danger with diving um when sort of you you know fizz up uh, as as we say um you know the the if you look at a say when you have a, a glass of champagne and you see you pour a glass of champagne you see those bubbles appearing on the side of the glass it's essentially the same thing that's happening with our bodies when we we decompress um we've got compressed gas like you would in a in a bottle of champagne or a bottle of coke and then um as we come up that is uh, coming out of solution that gas so it's it's slowly diffusing through our tissues and coming out through our lungs um so if we were to come up too quickly um those bubbles would appear you know quicker in our in our uh, vessels and it would cause us to get the bends you know so that's you know that's obviously a, a big danger for us so we have a you know we have a full team there uh, monitoring us sort of 24 uh, 7 we've kind of got cameras uh on us while we're in the in the chambers um and then we've got the sort of diving side of it then we've got a supervisor that you know speaks to us while we're while we're diving and yeah it's a full it's a full complement full team um on the ship you know there could be uh, you know, hundred people on each diving support vessel um, there to sort of facilitate um, us getting in the water and doing the job. You know, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So, what are uh, what are some of the coolest and some of the scariest things you've experienced down there at those depths? Yeah, you know, I've I've worked many many places. I've been uh, pretty much all over the world with it. Um, worked a lot in Southeast Asia, like I mentioned. Um, uh, up all over West Africa and Nigeria and Congo, Equatorial Guinea. So I've been, you know, I've been to all over the Middle East, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Caspian Sea, and Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan. So I've been to some pretty wild places. Um, yeah, so I've a few, definitely a few, few stories from traveling to those places. Um, I suppose 
one of the ones that springs to mind is uh, working in Kuwait, um, you know, working out in the Middle East and uh, these places, West Africa, it's, um, you know, there, there isn't a hell of a lot of safety there. It's, it's pretty sort of cowboy, cowboy style, um, you know, working and, um, you know, like working in the North Sea and, you know, other places like that, there's a lot more safety. And I was working in Kuwait this one time and uh, I was working for this kind of construction company and I was in my early days of um, saturation diving and you kind of take any work you can get, you know, and this particular company wouldn't be the the best record for safety, but they always took on like the biggest, heaviest construction jobs, you know, and it was always a good place to go and sort of uh, get the experience that you need to do sort of like heavy construction, um, which is sort of, you know, doing you know, big pipeline hookups, you know, and uh, stuff like that sort of, it's basically like underwater industrial pipe fitting what we're doing, you know, so we were working on these big sort of 50 inch, 60 inch lines, you know, um, and this particular job was um, uh, shallow water, but it was the middle of summer, it was like August in Kuwait, and it was very, very hot, you know, so we were we were actually only maybe 25, 30 meters in depth, but it was so so hot like the water was like bath water so we were going down in the in the diving bell and um you know we were absolutely boiling we were taking down like bottles of frozen water but you know into the diving bell with us and they would just thaw out in like you know half an hour an hour so it was just so hot but then on top of that we were working on a manifold on the bottom which is like a sort of junction of of pipelines and it was there had been a leak on there and there was a huge amount of uh kind of crude oil just like kind of um stuck all over this um manifold and we had to get in and first we had to clean it off to um take out a section and it just ended up getting all over our our umbilicals because we've got a a hose that comes from the bell and that that uh, has our our communication lines and our gas lines and so we're getting this crude all all over us and we were coming back to the diving bell like the there was two divers at the time me and another guy we were swapping out and we didn't realize the time but we were actually we nearly we're getting a bit high from these fumes from the from the crude oil so at one stage I came back and the and the other diver was uh, kind of like almost nearly flaked out, like lying inside the bell. I like had to kind of rouse him because um, there was all this crude oil and the fumes from it were, were literally toxic and he was literally pa- nearly passed out, you know. So it was a pretty um, hectic sort of scenario and we had to get in and, you know, make sure we had to clean all our uh, our the our lines before we got back in the bell because it was a really dangerous situation, you know, but... This is again working out there. The stuff of like that happens, and then after that, then we had to get in and uh, into this manifold. And after we'd sort of half cleaned it, um, we had to burn uh, holes in uh, this uh, piece that we had to lift out. And you know, there was still like bits of oil um, on this manifold. And uh, there was actually at one stage, I remember turning around and seeing a, 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 we were using these sort of oxyarc um, burning rods. And um, I remember looking across and seeing this little globule of oil that still had caught fire underwater and it was floating uh, away <laughs> a little ball of oil on fire you know so it only lasted like a, a half a second but uh yeah that was probably one of the craziest things i've seen you know <laughs> you don't get too many opportunities to see something like that that's pretty neat yeah so <laughs> what about a scary time um scary time i suppose um yeah just you know, working in, um, I think probably one of my, some of the earlier diving that I'd done when I was, uh, when I was air diving, um, before the, the saturation, um, I was working in, um, India and, um, we were diving, air diving at the time now, and we were diving down to like, uh, 50, I think about 50 meters and we were, we were working and had to do a quick task. And 
because of the like I was mentioning with the air diving, you just dive off the side of the vessel, and um, we were actually getting well nitrogen narcosis because we were diving down to fifty meters, and we, then we were um, having to do like quick task. But um, working off India, the the visibility is 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 terrible in the water. It's actually you can look the water can look like literally like coffee sometimes, you know. Um, so we were going down, and it was we were trying to get this task done. The currents are really strong, and um, you know the the visibility was literally none. So I remember, remember going in and down to fifty meters, you know, really quickly. We go down in like this little basket. We they lower down on the side of the boat, and I got down onto the pipe, and uh, I, I I basically the nitrogen narcosis kicked in like hundred percent, and I was literally I could just imagine me holding onto this pipeline uh, for dear life, and all I could see was stars. I was completely off my head. I've you know. <laughs> felt like I was on a lot of drugs at the time and uh I just have this supervisor shouting in my ear saying you know come on get the job done because you've literally only got you know five or ten minutes before you have to come back up you know and uh yeah I just it, it just takes it takes a while to sort of adapt to that sort of nitrogen narcosis and uh, I didn't really uh do too well that particular dive I don't think I did, got anything done to come back out and someone else to win, you know <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he's yelling at you. Get the job done. You're just saying, I'm still trying to figure out where the heck I am, man. Give exactly. me a second. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, do you ever get into these situations, and does it ever occur to you, or do you ever think, well, you know, maybe I'd just rather sit in a computer, you know, in front of a computer and, and do a job like that for a while, or does this just does this type of work just drive you on a daily basis? Well, I mean, I suppose it kind of like just to go back a little bit further to before the diving. Um, you know, when I was, uh, um, I was in sport, I was into sport as a teenager and I was, uh, actually a competitive swimmer. So I was kind of, you know, pretty active. Um, but I, when I was about 16, I started, um, drinking, uh, alcohol and using drugs quite heavily. And I kind of went down that path. Um, you know, I kind of, I'm a, I'm a very sort of, you know, one track mind, maybe addictive personality, you want to call it. And I got really, really stuck into that. Um, and I spent sort of kind of five years, um, you know, drifting around and getting in, in a bit of trouble with, you know, drugs and alcohol. And I actually ended up inside a, a rehab treatment center. Um, you know, I was using uh, a lot of heavy drugs at the time. Um, and, you know, things weren't really, you know, good. I had a, you know, didn't do anything for five years apart from do that, just partying and, and doing drugs. And, um, you know, I even, I, I had to leave Ireland at one stage. I was over living over in the UK and um, I lived in, in this flat with a, with a friend of mine, we had an apartment, kind of condo, I suppose you got to call it, but it had no furniture in it because we didn't uh, want to spend the money on furniture. And I lived in this little one-bedroom room and uh, I had a mattress thrown on the ground and there wasn't even any curtains on the on the window. I had black bags taped over the window and, you know, it was just like this little dark hole. And, um, you know, I would I was in a quite a dark place myself, you know, obviously, um, to go to that and, you know, um, I suppose... You know, I I had a history in my family of alcohol abuse as well, and um, yeah, it was a, it was a tough time. And uh, I, you know, I ended up coming back when I was twenty one to Ireland, and then ending up, as I said, going into a, into a rehab and and kind of getting getting clean and um, uh, sober. Then you know, so yeah, like I I suppose that after something like that happening. Um, you know, I didn't really want to look back, you know, and I want to try and make the most of, 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 of the life that, uh, that I have. And, um, for me, um, 
you know, like I was always looking for a buzz from, you know, the alcohol and drugs. And I think I found that, you know, I found that again through the diving. Um, and I found that through, through the, you know, adventure sports, which, which I got into kind of early on, which really saved me. I think I, I started, um, surfing, um, uh, probably a couple of months after I, I got clean, we've got really good surf here in the West coast of Ireland. And, um, you know, I actually, I'll tell you a quick story. How about how I got into that? I, I was, you know, getting clean and you know i didn't actually have a job at the time i was on the dole here like so uh, social support what we call in ireland and um i uh i had a friend of mine who was also getting clean and he was a he'd been a dj and uh he'd had uh, his dj equipment and he sold it because he didn't want to be associated with the kind of party scene anymore and he ended up you know selling that and he had a little bit of money and he said look i want to go i want to start surfing and i was like okay cool i'll be into doing that but you know i don't really have any money of you know you know, didn't have a job or anything. And I said, look, uh, you know, he said, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll buy a wetsuit if you buy a board, you know? And I, and I said, <laughs> my, yeah, I saved up my dough money and he bought the wetsuit and I bought the board. And then we took off down the coast here in Ireland to a place called a hinge. It's like a famous kind of little surf, surf town. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're driving down in the car in the middle of a storm in November in Ireland, which is, you know, uh, not uh the ideal weather but anyways we um you know we headed out surfing and of course he he went out first he used the put the wetsuit on and the head out the board and i sat in the car in the the wind and the rain and uh then he came in and uh gave me the the wetsuit and the board of course he pissed in the wetsuit and i had to get that on and (laughs) (laughs) awesome it was funny and then i went out and i was uh you know i was out there and middle of a storm and in the west coast of ireland in the middle of november the water is absolutely freezing and you know it just kind of i suppose at the time you know after going through what i had been through with the alcohol and the drugs and um you know that sort of dark place i'd been in i just kind of it ignited something in me and it you know tapped into like a, a crazy energy i just i really enjoyed the the rawness of you know the the harsh kind of winter weather in ireland and it just kind of it you know it opened up something for me and after that i you know i i I basically became a surfer. I just was hundred percent into surfing and, um, uh, you know, one thing led to another with that. I, you know, I, that's kind of one of the reasons why I ended up in Australia. And then, you know, as soon as I found out about the diving, it was just, it just made total sense to go into that. So, you know, for me, it was, you know, coming back to what I was saying, it's just, you know, I didn't want to look back in my life. I just wanted to make the most of it. And for me, it was just, you know, life just seemed like an adventure, you know, uh, the diving was an adventure, you know, and then the surfing was an adventure and it was just, you know, I just wanted to follow that path no matter what, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what a cool and inspiring story for you guys to to both at the same time, dig your yourselves out of that, that hole that you had, had found yourself in. And I mean, to, to find adventure and, and get hooked on that, you know, like you alluded to, it was, uh, having an addict, an addictive personality kind of goes hand in hand with adventure because, you know, people can really really get deep into adventure because of it you get a little bit of thrill of doing something small and it's like well let me let me try something a little bit you know it gives me a little bit more and more and more and more so you know do you do you kind of feel like if you didn't have adventure and you did have that desk day job that you were you would be susceptible to to slipping back into the the alcohol and drug dependency absolutely you know that was um that was one of the main reasons i wanted to do the diving because diving you know I, that sort of lifestyle really appealed to me because it was to go offshore for um you know two three months at a time and then to have a, a period of time off you know a month off two months off you know um for me you know like you know doing a nine to five and then just having the weekend you know it, for most people it's 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 okay you know 
and it, it would have probably survived sufficed to me in a way but I just really appealed to me to be able to go away and come back and then have a good month or two to really get stuck into you know an expedition or you know go somewhere on a surf trip or a snowboarding trip or whatever it is you know so that sort of um yeah really appealed to me and um I think yeah absolutely if I didn't have um you know these things in my life I you know I definitely would end up going back to that sort of alcohol and drugs for sure because you know I I've no reason to do it now like I you know I want to get to bed early so I can get up you know and go go surf or go you know go train or do whatever it is you know so it's um you know it's I think if you're having if you're having fun and you're enjoying your life um you've no reason to to go back to um the drugs and the alcohol you know and it's you know you've you've got this amazing connection to nature you know and and you feel you feel a bit more part of the planet like for me when I was um you know using drugs it was it was a it was a complete disconnect from everything you know it was a disconnection from from life and that's you know that's what happens when you get that dependency and now I'm I'm connected I'm connected to the planet when I'm out there and um you know I'm connected to other people that I'm you know my friends and family and stuff so it's it's a yeah it's a complete uh new way of life yeah <clears throat> yeah yeah you found a way to to make life you know it's finally clicked you know life is finally a, a meaningful instead of just wasting it away you know and hiding in your in your dark apartment that's mm, for sure absolutely yeah Action cameras evolved quickly and are no longer just for recording your adventures. The new SIOI Iris 4G shares experiences as they happen. The connected camera is built specifically for action sports. It's rugged, wearable, and goes places you won't take your smartphone. The best part? Broadcast from the great outdoors with a simple touch. Your friends can watch live or come back for an instant replay. No downloads, no editing, now that's progress. Visit SIOEYE.com and share your next adventure live. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events.
So your job, I imagine, you know, because of hazard pay and, and the work schedule you have, it sounds like it also affords you that that magic formula of being able to take time off and, and get out and do some of these amazing adventures that you've done. Um mm. What are, I mean, there's a whole list. I mean, you're, I, I talked about, uh, hiking Lake Baikal in Siberia. Uh, mm-hmm. you just got back from that. Uh, you're involved in, you know, ultra marathons in the Arctic, uh, mountaineering, split boarding, uh, base camping in Alaska, I mean, all kinds of, of stuff like that. So share with our audience, some of the, the things that you do partake in when you get some time off from diving. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I I've always sort of I've bounced around quite a bit between different things, you know. And uh, you know, when I when I saw your podcast and it just kind of was adventure, it just really I thought like this is kind of made for me because, you know, I suppose I've never really defined myself by any one particular thing. You know, I've I've, I've surfed for um, a number of years. I you know I I lived in Bali, um, you know, while I was diving and I used to surf. You know, some of the the big stuff at Uluwatu and uh, you know I've been all over Indonesia and uh, Mentawi Islands and um, but then I, I actually got into snowboarding. I went snowboarding. You know, I um, through through the surfing. Obviously, it's easily related. Related, but when I got into the mountains and stuff, I I just uh, it was a whole new thing for me. You know, we have some mountains in Ireland here, but nothing like the snow capped. Um, you know, like you'd get in Colorado and I went, I went snowboarding, uh, this one year in the Alps and it really, um, opened my mind up to the, the possibilities of the mountains. And, um, I just sort of went with that for, you know, a few years and, um, I got into split boarding, um, you know, which is if, if anyone doesn't, doesn't know, it's, uh, basically like ski touring for, uh, snowboarders, you know, so uh, that took me into the back country and, uh, you know, I spent, um, I think I did two seasons in Canada I spent one season kind of in Whistler um and then a, another season I came back and uh, myself and a buddy and another another friend the three of us uh, rented an RV and traveled uh all over British Columbia and up into Alaska um and spent four months uh, basically splitboarding non-stop and then en- ended with a, a trip to um Glacier Bay National Park, a base camp um, for two and a half, well, just over two weeks, um, which was absolutely amazing trip, you know, uh, to base camp out there in the in the wilds of Alaska and uh, and snowboard some of the peaks out there, which are pretty much half of them are unnamed, you know, it was uh, it was amazing, you know. So, yeah, that you know, and then that led into um, uh, me going, uh, you know, to antarctica on a, on a splitboard expedition and then also up to svalbard in the arctic and another uh, splitboard expedition and yeah you know just lots of different places uh japan argentina um you know all over the alps and yeah and then last year uh i you know i was f- feeling like i wanted to challenge myself a little bit more i don't know why i was reading uh an article on online i think it was on red bull it was like the 10 hardest races in the world and I saw this race in the Arctic. It's a 350 mile ultra marathon, and um, I just decided I kind of wanted to do it. I don't know where I, where I got the idea, but it's um, I have never done a marathon. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm thinking. I, <laughs> so why not try one in the Arctic? Yeah, why not try a you know ten back to back or something ridiculous like that? Um, and then uh, yeah, I went for this. Uh, crazy ultramarathon 350 miles um last last march uh, it's called likey 6633 it starts just inside the or just uh outside the arctic circle 
um, and it takes you all the way up to the Tuk Tuk and the banks of the Arctic Ocean in uh, the Northwest Territories. So uh, I uh, I rang I entered this and trained in Ireland for like three months before I had this big chunk of time off and got totally obsessed with that and the training I was you know dragging tires around the mountains in Ireland and buying all this cold weather Arctic gear and then headed off uh, to um, Canada to do this this race and uh, it had only been it, they'd held it for seven years and I think there'd only been something like 12 finishers at the time so it was like a, wow yeah not very I'm not many people have actually entered it you know truth be told but at the same time it you know not many people had finished it either so it was it's definitely like um up there with one of the sort of tough toughest ultra marathons you know and it's very long obviously and the weather is a, a massive factor and it's also very mentally it was very mentally tough because there's a lot of very very straight roads in it um so i suppose you know i just i, I savored the challenge you know for me the the diving like living inside a you know a chamber for 28 days like is mentally mentally tough you know it's a challenge to you know go in there you're you lose a lot of your dignity. You're, you've got you're on camera. You're you're in a closed space with other guys, and there's no way you can get out. You know, there's you know the, you have to decompress. Like you can't just say I want out and you get out. You know, you you could be seven days before you can get out of a chamber. You know, like people have said before, it's actually it takes less time to come back from the moon than it does to come back from the depths that we work at. You know, and that's that is the truth. You know, you know it's if you're if something happens to you down there while you're diving if you get injured you know you can't just get out and go to the hospital you know the the most the most they can do is get a doctor into you and that then can decompress with you you know so i've kind of operated in that sort of environment that mentality you know um of you know just being at, at the mercy of uh of of that you know so i think you know, transferring that into the the type of ultramarathon that was, which was, uh, you know, kind of mentally more mentally tough than physically tough. Like, you know, if you can, if you can do a hundred miles, you can do 300 miles, you know, it's it, the, the distance is kind of irrelevant. It's just the amount of time you're out there, you know, which is, you know, anything up to, well, I was, I think it took me seven and a half days to finish this thing, you know? Um, and, um, yeah, I just, I suppose I really, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it was, I sort of tapped into something new again in myself, which was, uh, a way of sort of pushing myself and challenging myself you know um and and from there you know things have kind of changed again for me in my life you know yeah i love the the link between um the the narcotics and alcohol and and the adventure sports that you have brought up a couple times and then that's the the men, the mental strength that you have to have for that because obviously for you know for someone that's uh is hooked on on alcohol or, or drugs, the that really saps your your mental strength because you've you've essentially given in, you know, to that to that addiction. But like you're saying, you know, the the ability to deal with the the depths of of deep sea diving or the seven and a half days running, you know, in in such cold temperatures uh, for 350 miles, there's a lot of mental strength that you have to to summon to do either one of those and to, to pull yourself away from the dependency and apply that mental strength to these things is, is such a really cool, inspiring story. I hope it reaches out to some people in the audience as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny, you know, it's something that people comment on a lot, you know, and, and, um, if, you know, if enough people say it to me, like, I suppose I could be walking around really thinking to myself, God, I'm so amazingly strong and, and mentally 
powerful and blah 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 but i actually i actually <laughs> don't believe that myself you know um because i'm i'm a big believer in in trying to be humble and um you know i think you know i, I you know you know, these are things that I want to do, you know, I'm actually, you know, I'm going out there and I'm, I'm actually paying money to enter these things, you know, so this is like my holiday, you know, like, for me, like, when I look at when I think about real mental strength, I think about my mother raising four kids on her own, you know, and, and people that are, you know, in really, really tough situations in their life, you know, and then I, I kind of bring myself back down to earth, you know, and yeah, you know, look, getting through alcohol and drugs was, was really, really tough. And, and, and that, and, and I suppose, you know, I did, I did work really hard at it, you know, but at the same time, I think, you know, I got, I had a lot of help, um, as well, you know, so I, I suppose, you know, it is a big part of it, but I think it's, it's a balance between, um, you know, uh, you know, having, you know, not being too much into the ego around it. And also, um, you know, thinking that, you know, at, at times it, you know, like with the diving, you know, you're just, you're, you've no choice, really. You're stuck in that chamber. You can't get away with it. And, you know, I, I suppose I just don't want to tap out. You know, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really, I just want to just go through. It. And that was the same with the ultramarathon. I just said, right, well, I'm in it now. I might as well just, you know, just hang in there until the end, you know, what's the worst going to happen, you know? So, um, it's, yeah, it's a funny one. You know, I, I try not to think too much about it and, um, you know, just keep pushing on with, with a lot of the stuff that I do, you know? <laughs> well, you're obviously a humble guy and I can, I can appreciate that for sure. But you know, you can get all the help, uh, in the world, but in the end, you're the one that truly has to do it. So pat yourself on the back, you know, at least a little bit, humility and uh, being humble is a good thing for sure, but allow it for yourself. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You're right. I, I actually, um, you know, I, I was in, uh, I'll, you know, talk more about Lake Baikal is the last thing I just did. And, um, I just, I actually finished it. Um, and, uh, it actually ended up being more than I thought because I was uh, walking in and out of these little bays and stuff. So I ended up doing over 700 kilometers and I got to the end and I was sat on the, uh, on the, on the sled and, uh, I kind of was like, you know, there was nobody there. It was kind of like a, you know, wasn't like an anticlimax, but it was just like that moment where I just finished. And I was like, wow, this is it. I finished. I'm sitting on the sled and I'm kind of look, look just over the edge of the lake. And there was kind of where there was a, there was kind of a frozen marsh where kind of like a river came in. And I thought to myself, geez, you could probably go a bit further, you know? And, uh, you know, I was like, hang on a minute. I've just done 706 kilometers, like four, <laughs> 440 miles, you know? And I was like, this is, this is enough. And I, I need to just pat myself on the back here, you know, because I think, as somebody who's, uh, you know, come from a, a dark place, you know, um, you know, as a, as a teenager, I didn't really, I suppose I didn't have a lot of self-worth and self-confidence. And that's kind of one of the other things, you know, the why I ended up in the alcohol and drugs thing. It just sort of, it was an easier, easier, uh, way for me to go at the time. Um, so coming back from that, like, I, I suppose I'd be very driven, you know? So, um, you know, and it's that addictive personality, like enough is never enough, you know, but, you know, I had to stop at that moment and say like, you know, 706k is enough. I don't need to like go drag the sled any further, you know, just stop, give myself a pat on the back. You've done well, you know, um, you've achieved a massive goal and yeah, just, uh, as you said, pat on the back. Yeah. Accept your accomplishment and move on. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the, the Lake Baikal thing. I mean, 430 miles is a long way and put that in perspective for people in the U S that's 50 miles wider or longer than the width of Colorado. So you imagine going out into Siberia and, and dressing for the weather and the occasion and 
spending days upon days upon days walking on either snow or ice and obviously camping and living in that environment for for that amount of time and that amount of miles. I mean, that's a that's a pretty crazy feat. What what drove you to do that? There was some sort of record involved in this, right? Yeah, I um I actually I I I saw the pictures of the lake um online a few years ago. It's you know, it's a Lake Baikal is uh, the deepest freshwater lake in the world. It's 1,600 meters deep at its deepest. It's, I think it holds 20% of the world's fresh water, and it completely freezes over in winter. And, you know, if anyone has never seen pictures of it, you know, just Google Lake Baikal in um, winter, and it's just incredible because it's crystal clear water, and it freezes, and it's just got this amazing-looking ice, you know. Um, and you know, I, I, when I raced in, in the Arctic last, last year, I was the last third of the races on the ice roads, you know, and it was just, um, an amazing feeling being on the sort of on the ice like that, you know? So, um, I really wanted to go, go to, uh, Baikal and a couple of years ago, there was actually a race on there uh, called the black ice race. Um, but it was only held once. Um, and I was kind of Googling it before and thinking, oh, hopefully it'll be on again. I can enter it. And then, um, I was actually in uh I was in Nepal last uh last November I was climbing uh, Amadablam um 6800 meters some of that and then I was um I came back to Kathmandu and uh I was actually going to go on a, I was actually just about to go on an expedition to make an attempt on Annapurna winter winter ascent attempt on Annapurna um which didn't work out in the end because of because the weather but um I actually got uh, I got sick in in Kathmandu and I was uh you know got a stomach bug as as you easily do and I was lying in uh, bed for a couple of days and um you know just had this sort of moment where I was like I can I can go and just do this myself it's probably not that big a deal and just sort of at that moment I just made the decision to you know to go to um to Baikal that the following March you know um and I actually was racing in, uh, in the Yukon again in early February. So I was back uh, for the Yukon Arctic Ultra, which was uh, the beginning of February um, in Whitehorse. So that was 300 miles. Um, you know, so I was out in Nepal for um, six, seven weeks uh, in November, December. Come back to Ireland, uh, you know, did a huge amount of mileage then December, January and headed off to uh uh, the Yukon to race in the Yukon Arctic Ultra and uh, I ended up getting second in that and I got the third fastest time the guy who beat me actually an American guy Jan Kriska he um, he broke the record and uh, he just went just under five days and I did five days and three hours um, and that was I mean an incredible race I uh, really enjoyed that and then you know I planned to, to do Baikal three weeks later so literally three weeks later I'm on a plane on the other side of the world uh, in like southeast siberia to head to <laughs> why slow down right <laughs> yeah and people are like what are you doing you've just you you know raced 300 miles in the yukon and i think i had six hours sleep in five days um and then i end up in uh in siberia um with my sled literally all the same gear you know it's, it's those win the winter ultras you know um or you know, you're, you've got your sled and all your, your stuff. So it's, it's essentially the same gear. So yeah, I was at head over there and I wanted to, um, to try and, uh, beat this fastest known time, uh, by Ray Zahab and, uh, Kevin Valley. They're two Canadian, um, adventurers and ultra runners 
they did it in 13 and a half days. So um, I was solo and unsupported. So I, I, I was set up for solo unsupported. I had uh, all my, um, everything with me, all my gear, uh, all my food for the whole crossing. And um, I had uh, six liters of uh, Russian petrol, two stoves. Uh, yeah, like, you know, sort of 12 kilos of food. I think I had yeah, about 60 kilos over 100 and 120 pounds of uh of gear in my sled and uh set off um from the south of uh Baikal on the 1st of March and headed uh, headed on north and ran into trouble in the second day both my stoves stopped working um and that's uh, scary yeah actually. yeah I tested them pretty good but I probably could have done it a bit more but um yeah, they were they were Primus Omnifield, and that's a, a note to anyone out there. The Primus Omnifield stoves do not work with uh, Omnifuel; they just work with camping gas. <laughs> well, so was a was it a temperature issue that you were dealing with? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I um, I think it was. Yeah, I I, I think it was. There's a few um, joints in there, and I think it just clogged up the the the, the petrol and uh, the Russian petrol and. You know, I, I, I since learned in hindsight that if you're going to so like, OK, the reason obviously is the reason why I was using petrol is that you can't get camping gas in Russia. So, right. yeah, that's the main thing. The main it was my main concern going over there. You know, I was kind of researching it a fair bit and you know, spoke to people. And uh, yeah, look, it was, you know, a case of you have to use petrol. But I learned in hindsight that uh, um, I used actually I, I got the, the best quality petrol like over there. They've in, in Russia, they've got a few different grades. And I think you guys have that in uh in America as well, different grades of uh, petroleum, you know, uh, gas. Right. Yep. So we uh, we don't have that in Ireland. Just got one type, but anyways, they had. I got the best type, and uh, apparently someone said to me afterwards that you actually should have gotten the worst, the worst one because they had there's more additives in the in the more the more in the better quality stuff, you know. So yeah, it didn't. They didn't burn very well, and then they ended up um, both of them ended up kind of not working at all. And I was swapping parts around and changing nozzles, and um, this was like day two. Um, so then I had to kind of make the decision to call my contact in, in Russia who had helped me in, in transfers and stuff. And they were amazing. Um, uh, Tatiana at AB Tours, they were great. They went and got me um, two MSR Dragonfly stoves from a, a camping store um, locally to them. And, and they brought them to me, which because I, I was close to the shore, close to one of these little towns in the south. And um, so I picked up two new stoves and they also brought... Uh, five liters of paint thinner just in case because i wasn't sure whether the petrol that i was using was completely bunk and i was going to end up you know not working either so um here i am with four stoves five liters of paint thinner and six liters of uh, petrol you know um and then i went went on my merry way but obviously i'd lost my unsupported status at that stage um which i didn't mind you know i look i just wanted to keep going and, and complete the you know the whole traverse of the lake and um you know i i at that particular day i my only did i only managed five kilometers because i had to you know basically wait wait for them to come to me and, and i had to make sure the stoves were working again so you know that kind of went out the window a bit but as i said it didn't matter i just wanted to keep moving and yeah i had to end up the msr dragonfly worked perfectly with the petrol um for the rest of the trip you know and then i uh yeah i kept going to uh heading north um to the uh to the end of the lake yeah which took 17 days in the end 
Okay, so even after those delays and fighting with the stoves and waiting for a little bit of support, you still you still were pretty close to the to thirteen and a half day record that these guys had sent. Yeah, if if you know at the time, yeah, if, if a lot of things had gone right, I think yeah, definitely could have could have gone for it. You know, at the top, you know, it's funny the the fastest known time thing. It's um, you know, I I googled around, I looked at it, I, I really only found their um, you know, their their account of it online and. And I saw a lot of Russians out using the lake, you know, and I didn't, it's funny, it's one of those things I didn't, at the time as well, I was wondering, is it maybe some Russians done it in 10 days, you know, you just don't know, it's one of those things, you know, um, so, you know, I just said, look, I'll just keep going and see how I go, and, you know, if I if I go faster than if I don't, if I don't, it doesn't matter, I just wanted to try and finish it, and I actually was on, on track for, um, for doing around 14 days, but uh, when you get to the north of the lake, there's there's no towns. It's kind of like, there's nothing there. Um, and it actually, I got snowed in, it snowed about a foot and a half one night. And then I was, it slowed me right down. So, you know, there was days where I was covering up to 60 kilometers on the bare ice. But then I, when I got to this Northern section, it, it snowed and it covered the ice with snow. And so I had, I was wearing snowshoes and I was, I was, I was feeling every, every pound of the sled behind me. It was, you know, dragging really heavy, you know, big clumps of snow in it. Um, and one day it took me the best part of 10 hours to do, you know, 10, 10 kilometers, you know, it was super slow. And, uh, I think that was probably the lowest point of, of the expedition. Cause I was, I was on, you know, I was on about day 14 at the time and, uh, I was running out of food at that stage as well. I started to have to ration my food because I didn't know how how long it was going to take me to to get to the end? I was just kind of in no man's land. Um, there was no car. Like the Russians used the lake as a as an ice road and in sections, so that you can you know even if there was a bit of snow, you could kind of you know follow a car track. But where I was, there was nothing, so I was breaking trail myself and um, you know just plowing through kind of deep deep snow. And you know it was really frustrating because the ice was there. It was just it was down a few you know half a foot, and I could just feel it. I was just um, you know willing the wind to pick up to blow it off the uh <laughs> right yeah because it, it actually that's what it would do the winds the winds there were incredibly strong i've never experienced anything like it you know even haven't been to you know patagonia and antarctica and places like that um I've, I've never experienced winds like like it in um in baikal it's just you know very very strong winds and the whole the whole lake itself is rimmed by mountains you know you've got these you know incredible peaks the whole way around it and the wind just seems to this Siberian wind that just comes down through the valleys and it, it just whips around and you, you know, you don't know which way it's coming. It's coming one direction one minute and the other, the next, and you think to yourself, Oh, if I just get around this headland, I'll, you know, I'll be sheltered and you get around the headland. It's, it's coming around the direction into your face, you know? So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the day is full of those kind of thoughts too, because you're out there just with your own you know, thoughts. You're thinking, man, you know, we sit here and battle this wind, you know, all day long and you're willing it to, uh, to do one thing and it does the other and yeah. it's got to occupy you. Yeah. It was funny. I, you know, as, as I said there, I was, there was days where, um, you know, I was like, it was so windy. I, I was really worried about, um, you know, setting up camp and, one day it was that windy that I uh, I had to, the sled was was on the ice and it was actually blowing around in front of me so the sled was taking off and then I was losing my my grip on the on the ice I I had a you know a pair of sort of uh, runner um, not sort of hiking boots sort of Hoka one one trail running shoes 
and I had ice spikes screwed into the bottom and, and I was losing my grip um, on the ice because of the wind and then the sled was getting blown off ahead of me and was just taken off on the ice and I I had uh, my for my tent I had ice pe- ice screws you know they're literally the most expensive tent pegs in the world because um, I had, you're right yeah I had to buy 12 of these as to use as uh, tent pegs you know I had to screw screw them in you know but I had like I had an ice screw at the ready because I, I actually thought that I would have to you know put an ice screw into the ice and hook myself and sled into it at one stage because just to you know stop myself getting blo- blown on blown away on the ice um so it was yeah it was interesting and uh yeah the, the first time I I think about day I think it was day five when um I was on the ice and the the ice actually creaks and groans a lot and it, there's a lot of movement in the ice because you've got this very very long finger of a lake you know it's um but it's not that wide i think it's 80 80 kilometers wide um and then there's a lot of like pressure ridges and you know you've got like this sort of jumble ice that's you know had frozen early in the season then it you know thawed out and refroze there's big sections where you, you actually have to climb over chunks of ice and i think it's someone told me it was on a fault line as well so there's all this creaking groaning and you know, cracking going on all the time, you know, even there was days when I was walking along and there's like little fissure cracks shooting out of my feet, you know, so it's, it was quite unnerving to begin with, you know, but the ice is, you know, three meters thick, so there was nothing going to happen, but it was, it was quite scary. So I said, um, I said I'd camp off the ice, um, one night. So I w- went onto the shore, you know, this nice little kind of, you know, beach and, uh, set up, set up camp there, but um obviously i wasn't using the ice screws there i just had the normal my temp pegs but the the powder the snow there is uh you know probably the same as the type you get in uh, colorado that real dry light powder you know so so i wasn't getting a lot of purchase with my uh tent pegs in the in the snow um but it was a lovely evening at the time it was a lovely sunset i said okay it's you know i won't worry too much about it but i i woke at two o'clock in the morning and the tent was getting blown all over the place the winds had picked up you know something crazy over 100 kilometers an hour uh, i could just hear the trees just around me just you know making this insane noise um and then i was kind of spent the rest of the night kind of awake and you know hoping the tent would hold um and luckily it did and the the, the only reason the tent did hold is because um you know as you know if you're doing any winter camping you don't get out of the tent to uh go to the toilet i'd been uh peeing in a pee bottle and then i i've been uh, <laughs> emptying the pee bottle out of the tent just reaching out and i'd I, luckily i right. poured it um onto the peg the tent peg around the snow on the outside and it it's like uh formed this little ice block um <laughs> and fr- froze it in there for you that's a good idea <laughs> <Yeah>. actually <laughs> so i was uh, uh that was lucky because that was the, the the section on the outside that where the vestibule was where the wind was coming from and um yeah otherwise it really wanted to lift it off from there so uh that was my first encounter with the wind early on and uh after that i um uh i, I stayed on the ice i didn't care about the creaking and groaning because you know you're with, with with 12 ice screws you know you're you, it's going to take a lot to get uh to rip those out you know yeah, at least you stay put. Yeah. Hey, folks, be sure to swing by 180tac.com to check out the 180 stove and the 180 flame camp stoves. These lightweight, compact, multi fuel stoves are made in the USA and are designed to be fail proof on your adventure. 
These stoves offer the flexibility to cook your meal using twigs and sticks found around you or various other fuels like gel fuel, alcohol, charcoal, or even use them as a windbreak and stable cooking surface for remote bottle gas stoves. The ingenious locking tab and slot design ensures your stove is very solid and stable without the use of hinges, rivets, or fasteners that can fail you in the field. Visit 180TACK.com to find your next camp stove. Well, hey, if you maybe what do you in that kind of wind, you stayed in your tent, you could have just rode the the tent all the way to the end. You know, that would have been a quicker way to do it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, I was trying. I had a section where I was actually trying to. Uh, I was jumping onto the sled while and trying to like ride the sled in the wind. You know, but it wasn't. I wasn't getting too far. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your upcoming stuff. I, you had alluded to. Um, uh, trip you're planning to row the Atlantic solo. These these trips always intrigue me. We interviewed a, a man named Peter Bray uh, back uh, back in September, I think it was, um, and he's from Cornwall, England, and had had done it. And I was just really intrigued with the again the mental stability or the mental mindset it takes to be out in the middle of the ocean by yourself for those kind of periods. So. Tell us about uh, the plans to do this. Uh, why and what's the what's the reason? What's the purpose? And what do you intend to to accomplish? Yeah, I I, I got the idea um, last year. I get a lot of the ideas for my trips when I'm in when I'm in the chamber at work. Um, I think <laughs> it's the kind of place where it's not the best place in the world to be. Um, <laughs> and, right. uh, too, too many strange ideas come about. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I suppose. You know, I always trying to think up, you know, stuff to do. So yeah, I was reading a book, um, and um, the guy was talking about rowing the Atlantic. He rowed a, 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 in a pair, and they he spoke about how the middle of the night when he was rowing across in the middle of the Atlantic, and there was like the phosphorescent plankton um, that is like glowing, and it was as he took each stroke with the with the oars, there was like swirls of this. Um, you know, phosphorescent plankton glowing in the water and, you know, the Milky Way is above them. And, um, yeah, I just thought I'm, I'm into that. I'm gonna, I would like to experience that. And, um, yeah, I suppose as soon as that, as soon as I have the spark, um, of idea, then I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Um, that was kind of, it's always been the way with, with any of the adventures, the ideas, just as soon as I get that initial click, um, I just think, yeah, I could probably do that or maybe I could go for that. And, you know, I just, uh, from there, I just started, did a bit more research and, um, you know, thought, um, I'm, I'm going to go for it. And then I found out about the, the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, which is the, which is the race that I'm doing. It's a, uh, ocean rowing race from, uh, the Canary Islands off, uh, Morocco to Antigua in the Caribbean. And it's held every year in December. And there's solo pairs and fours, so there's about twenty twenty five crews usually entered. Um, and yeah, I committed to it. You know, not long after finishing that book, um, didn't really know what I was doing, but I, you know, decided to go for it anyway. Um, and trying to just work it all out now in the process of uh, training for it. I've got my boat. I've got a ocean rowing boat. Um, I'm actually picking it up in a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I'll bring that back to Ireland and start training on that for the rest of the year. And then uh, hopefully I'll be heading off across the Atlantic in December, you know. Well, that's going to be cool. Well, I'll definitely uh, follow along and uh, see how you, you do with that. Because, uh, like I said, I just looking on Instagram and, and checking out some of the things that you're up to, is uh, it's kind of mind-boggling. You know, we all have our, our a little adventure thing that we like to do, but you seem to be running the gamut of, uh, of the various adventures. You don't seem like you're going to stop anytime soon, but that's cool. I mean, being that, you know, where you came from with uh, the alcohol and drug dependency uh, and turning it into a lifestyle like this is, uh, like I said, is truly inspiring. It's, uh, I applaud you for that Thanks. and sticking with it. Thanks, Travis. Right on. All right. So speaking of Instagram, um, let's tell listeners where they, where it is they can go see what you're up to. So Instagram, what's your address there? Uh, it's solo gav, but solo is S O U L O G A V. And you can follow me on, on Instagram and also the same on Twitter. And, uh, uh, facebook.com forward slash solo gav again um yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm you know at the moment just uh getting into the training and stuff and i'm still posting some photos from lake baikal and there's yeah there's plenty of stuff on there so go check it out and uh, hopefully getting a web i'm getting a website together at the moment as well you know so yeah i'm actually gonna you know pursue the adventurer uh job title maybe uh, I've listened to enough podcasts and read a few books at this stage and going to definitely try and uh, do a bit more of this and see if, you know, I'm doing a bit of public speaking um, at the moment as well. I'm I'm really enjoying that. I've been doing some school talks for kids, which is uh, super fun. I've uh, been doing like uh, where I go in and, you know, just do a slideshow and, you know, with sort of 12 year olds and they're really into it. I've got a ton of great photos from all the different places I've been you know lots of wildlife shots and polar bears in the arctic and um stuff like that so the kids uh the kids are really enjoying that and do that in Galway and um I, I want to try and uh um bring the I'm going to bring the boat back and show them once I get that sorted then hopefully when I get out on the Atlantic um I want to try and do like a conference call or Skype call from there hopefully if I can get a decent connection um, try and like bring the the adventure into the classroom you know um yeah that's cool yeah that's kind of my a good thing at the moment i'm i'm really enjoying you know just doing my best to you know inspire or you know be some sort of role model to to younger kids in ireland because you know ireland's um you know it's it's becoming a very progressive country and you know adventure and outdoor activities wouldn't have been something that people would have done but it's really starting to happen now you know, with you know, people doing get out into the mountains here, and you know, surfing, and you know, all the adventure sports. So, um, you know, just trying to, you know, because we're 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 a we have a great history of uh, you know, hanging out in the pub and drinking drinking alcohol. You know, and, uh, you know, <laughs> don't get me wrong, people can enjoy that, um, you know, sensibly, um, but you know, it's good to uh, inspire people and kids to you know get out and uh, do more stuff that uh. Like I'm doing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're the perfect guy for it. I mean, I can't say that I, I've ever run across a, a person who, you know, will on their day job be 700 feet below sea level and then find themselves a week later, you know, on holiday, 22,000 feet above sea level. That's a, that's a pretty big range for somebody to exist in as a human being. So <laughs> you're definitely in a, a small minority there. Yeah, yeah, actually, I'd never thought of that. Probably not sure how many people have been deepest and been at the highest. Uh, I have to have to get up Everest yet, and uh, yeah, maybe some sort of claim there, there <laughs> you know? 
Well, I, I have no idea. I, no doubt I will see you uh, see reports of you being up there. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, Gavin. Well, man, thanks so much for, for coming on. I mean, I could make this a three-part uh, episode, no doubt, because there's a million questions I still like to ask you. But we'll hold it here for now, and maybe in the future we'll get you back on and have you fill us in on uh, on this open open ocean rowing that you're going to do. And uh, I'm sure by that time you'll have done plenty of other things that we can talk about. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely love to get back on and, uh, yeah, hopefully get some uh, some cool stories from being out in the Atlantic. Very cool, very cool. Well, keep it up, be safe, and I will definitely follow along and see where you're at. Right on. Cheers, Travis. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good one, Gavin. For those of you outside the Boulder, Denver area, keep in mind that you can visit our site, adventuresportspodcast.com, tomorrow evening before 6.30 Mountain Time, where we'll provide you two different ways for you to watch the live stream of Peter Schuster's Continental Divide Trail presentation. We hope you'll join us.